from Acts 6, 1 through 7. Now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to wait to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte, from Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of the Lord continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The word of the Lord. Good morning. So I'm Rob Antonucci. I'm going to be giving the message today, and I say it's a very privilege to be here. I didn't. I'm so glad I brought my wife this week. Uh, I would have been standing alone up there, but I'm so glad to be part of the the service here. And actually, I was telling others that it was a year ago, actually February 2nd last year, that I last traveled to an EPC. Church to speak, and it was this church, just before COVID hit and everything shut down. So, uh, how fitting to restart. Hopefully, we get restarted in person, being with people to worship and to to preach and to share. So, if you would join me in prayer, I'm going to open us before I preach. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for this season. We can remember what love is that you gave the perfect example of what love is, Lord, on this Valentine's Day, that you gave your son to be a witness, to be our our savior, to show us exactly what love is, and that we might model it as well as we go forth into the world. Lord, thank you for this day of worship. We can come together to worship as we do every day, Lord, we worship you and give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So, yeah, it has been a very challenging year, and I am so glad to be able to be back and traveling again and to be able to, to preach. Um, we came from north of Boston, where that's where we live. We work, I work with the Gordon-Conwell Seminary as well as we're under EPC and World Out- EPC World Outreach and Frontiers were missionaries full-time. Uh, we worked a long time in Central Asia for most of 20 years. And last year at this time when I was preaching, I was thinking, I, I, I went home that Sunday and 
within a day or two, our son left to go back to Central Asia to continue working uh, with EPC World Outreach. And he, uh, actually, we just spoke to him this morning. He's in Central Asia as well. And so he is doing well. He did have to come home for COVID and then went back again uh, in August when things opened up again. And so he'll be finishing his time uh, doing teaching of English with a Christian NGO there and uh, sharing with young men and his classmates, or he's a teacher of English, and sharing little bits of hope from his life and from his story and, and from God's word, uh, the reason that he has hope in this world. So thank you for thinking of him and us as you pray. So, yeah, <clears throat> today is, is obviously Valentine's Day, and I'm going to try to make the connection, not just to Valentine's Day, but God's love, and our love for our neighbors, and what it takes to love the world, because we're looking at mission, but mission always begins with local. It always begins with local, and why I chose to uh, preach on Acts 6, and I'm glad you guys are going through uh, Acts as a church to read it, and to study it, and preach from, uh, have it preached, uh, it's because we see the expansion of the church, and the main thing that's happening is the the amazing work of the Holy Spirit growing the church. But it's not without obstacles. It's not without challenges. And they are actually, believe it or not, similar to the ones we face today locally. And a lot of those have to do with change that the Holy Spirit is doing and how the Holy Spirit gives wisdom to overcome some of the challenges of things that are the greatest gift to the church and the greatest challenge is often the culture. The culture around us is often, it's the greatest gift because it allows us to embody the, the gospel into each culture and become incarnate just like Christ became incarnate into the time and the culture of, uh, of his day. And yet it's the challenge. The greatest challenge is culture because we get comfortable in the way we like to do things. And we think that's the end of all things, that it will always be this way. And it's hard when things begin to change. And change of that culture is something that takes a lot of work. And a, But when we can learn from what I'm going to share with you from Acts, when we learn to discern what the Holy Spirit is doing, and we get on board with what He is doing, we can recognize that there's a blessing and it's the greatest gift because there's growth that's going to happen in these growing pains. So <clears throat> so my own journey into the Christian faith, um, I actually had to sort of break out of my own uh, understanding of religious culture. I was one who was raised in a in Catholic church, and I appreciate as much as the truth that I got from that. It wasn't made I, did, I wasn't in a good place to know that it was personally applying to my life. But when I was in college and I became, uh, I really got involved with uh, the scripture on my own for the first time and I really understood what it was to follow, it was like breaking into a new cultural realm of understanding. What I had understood of religion was just go to church, get the elements and do the things, uh, say my words were saying the right words often in, in church, but my mind was completely elsewhere. I wasn't paying attention at all to what the meaning was. But when it broke through into my mind, when I went to a first uh, really Protestant church that I'd been to, and I was so curious, I'm like, well, what do they do in there, in that church? I mean, okay, it was similar, but then when I realized how much people were singing, like you were this morning, how much they were engaged personally in this relationship with God that they were singing about, 
it really struck home to me, and I began to weep to realize, wow, these people really understand. This is not just a, a form they go through. This is a relationship that they're having. And, it, and it, it cemented that new relationship that I had with the Lord. And so, but culture stuck with me afterwards. I kept saying afterwards, you know, that was a really message, good message from the priest. I mean, uh, sorry, you call him pastor. Uh, the terminology was just slightly different, but, you know, it was enough of a cultural change that I recognized why some of my friends who were grown, whom I'd grown up with had never stepped inside of a church and probably would never step inside of a church because they were afraid. They didn't know what people did in there. They didn't know. There was a cultural, just a, a small ecosystem of its own within our cultural context of church that is sometimes is a barrier to others' understanding. And the reason I can say that is it comes from Scripture. And what we read, what Iris read this morning, the early church had some of the greatest growing pains that they had to get through. But once they learned the basic lesson it would be the template for what was then repeated again and again, and you've already preached through it through this far in Acts. I think you're up to Acts 13 or 14 or something. And there's going to be more lessons of this breaking out of that the early church, if they were going to have a breakout of from it just being Jewish, Hebraic Jews in their culture, in their setting, it would eventually break out to the world. But not until they finally recognized there had been a pivot a pivot that had happened within the church because of the because of what Christ had done and the Holy Spirit had come and now the church was reorienting its focus outward, not back looking back at the temple, but looking outward at the world. And so that's the true message of love. And so when we let me go back to the text to help set the context of what's going on and where I'm getting this from. So Acts six one, and I'm reading from the ESV version. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Okay, let me just stop there. So, there's some context. So, the church has already grown. It's grown tremendously, but largely, largely Jewish, even mostly even Hebrew Jews, though there are some Hellenists. Hellenists is the word for Greek-speaking. Those culturally and linguistically, they were speaking the Greek language, maybe as their first language, and definitely influenced by the culture of the Greeks. And now you could maybe include a little bit of Roman culture, but they were different than the, we'll say, the purebred Hebrew Jerusalem Jews who would have focused either on Hebrew or Aramaic as language and cultural and settings and customs and traditions and everything that they did, that was the gold standard to them. And there's beginnings of a recognition that there actually are some factions or there are some layers of the culture, even of the Jerusalem church, that reflected the culture of the Jew, the, the, their cultural background that they came into it being Jewish that had existed before, and that they were Hellenists and there were Hebrews, Jews. And some, they had their own synagogue, even just a little bit later as mentioned in Acts 6, that there was a, a synagogue of the freedmen, meaning the, the Hellenists, the Jews, uh, who had been either been slaves or had been, uh, or from that a cultural affiliation. Um, and so there was this division, a slight difference in their cultural backgrounds and language that was becoming a barrier. It was a barrier because there was an injustice going on in the early church. A shocking one. Now, it was probably based out of their own under, uh, lack of awareness 
because we all have blind spots. We have blind spots. We can't see what we can't see because we're used to the, our own way of doing things. And for them, it was the Hellenists, the Jews who were Greek-speaking, who were being overlooked in the distribution of food. And it says, in the tw- so that's what had been happening. There had been, there was in that context uh, a lot of widows who had come to Jerusalem to await the coming Messiah. And obviously a lot of them had become believers in Christ, uh, Jesus as the Messiah. But there was an, an, an inordinate amount of widows who needed food because they were waiting uh, and there was no other means for their support. And so there had been a neglect, an oversight, uh, something that had not been intentional, but it may have been even because the the Hebrew Aramaic speaking Jews who were now believers in Jesus were do, doing distribution. They didn't maybe understand the language of these Greek speaking ones, or it just wasn't within their purview. They just didn't kind of pay attention to that subgroup within the culture of the early church. And there were a few thousand at that time, so it would have been easy to overlook. But it was a gross injustice. These are women and maybe some families that were not going to live if they couldn't get food. And so this was a big deal. It was such a big deal that the early church, this was their first challenge. And they say this is the first baby step towards recognizing differences in culture and how, they, how the early church was going to solve this issue was going to set a pattern for how it would be solved in the future. Well, <clears throat> so from that, if if they didn't solve this issue, then how would they ever going to fulfill the Great Commission? That every people, tribe, uh, that, that, that Christ had given the commission uh, to preach the gospel among all nations. So all nations is all ethne, ethne in Greek, meaning where we get ethnic, ethnic. And we see... Uh, if we look forward in Revelation 7-9, we see the completion of the Great Commission, the Revelation 7-9, where it says the gospel has gone to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So for very diverse uh, geographic, linguistic, ethnic, uh, tribe even, dispersal of the gospel, there have been now some from every grouping on the planet that has been reached that are there at that time in the end. But how was it going to get there if they were stumbling over? We couldn't even understand Hellenists in our midst who were being overlooked. How would we be able to reach them to the ends of the earth if we didn't understand that? So the early church had to make a pivot. They were largely more homogenous at that time, so they didn't get it. But this is where the, the discernment of the Holy Spirit, seeing that he was at work in their midst through the complaint the complaint, the rightful complaint of a small community within the, their, their, their greater community that had a right to say something, to say, hey, we're being overlooked. And that God was going to use that small complaint to make them aware that there were things under their noses they were missing and that there are people different than us in slightly different in culture, but in language and in ways. And so once they recognized that, <clears throat> and we'll carry on in verse two, uh, verse two of six. And the twelve, meaning the twelve apostles, summoned the full number of disciples and said, "It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables." So, first of all, mention this: that there were two things that the the disciples did right away. They recognized it. 
they listened. They recognized there was something going wrong that needed to be addressed, and they paid attention to it and began to take action. But before that, they were also in a process of discernment. They gathered the whole community together, the full number of disciples, it says. And they recognized, actually, there were two things going on here. We have problems of growth. That's that's really actually what the main problem is. This is a good problem. We have growth in that we have a bigger community than we can oversee physically, and there's this cultural group within us that's different. And and are we as the 12 disciples going to have to also serve tables to, for these few thousand people that are gathered? Or is there something God is going to now doing? He is anoint, He has anointed, he has given other people leadership qualities within the church, other giftings that they are supposed to be using for the service of the whole church. Well, they discerned rightly both because they made a twofold decision. First, they said, um, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve table. So they recognized their duty was to continue to preach and to focus on what they had been given to do. But this issue had to be solved practically. So verse 3 says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They were validating the concern. They were validating and acknowledging that God was also raising up other people besides themselves to do work for the church, to minister to the church, to, that God, the Spirit, was had already anointed these men because they chose them because they were full of the Spirit of wisdom. And that the, later it says that they were full of, uh, Stephen was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who is doing this work in the early church to see the, the church uh, deal with the immediate problem and also to bring about growth of differentiation between different roles within the body of Christ. And so <clears throat> what they did was, and they said, and what they said, please the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. There is an anointing. There is a setting apart of recognizing that the church has grown. It's now breaking out from just one culture and the apostles being in charge of everything to now it's decentralizing. The church is growing, and it's not going to continue to grow if they didn't do this because that would always be bound and tethered to that one culture of Jerusalem, the Hebrew even culture of the Jewish experience. They would maybe, we can see obviously through the rest of the book of Acts and much of what, what, um, the early, the, uh, Paul was writing and Peter was writing and John was having to address at different times the continuing of the, the, the linking, uh, the connection to the law and circumcision and these customs which had become idolatrous, idolatrous to, and that would prevent the growth of the church if they didn't break out of that singular understanding of what those things were perfectly fine for the early Jerusalem church, it seems, to practice. But it wasn't right for them to ask that to be the practice of all the churches everywhere. And we're, you're getting to that when you get to Acts 15. Actually, before then, it happens in Acts 10. So they've got you've got this, this distinction of that the Holy Spirit is setting apart some as, Lord, as leaders and, 
And I always used to read these verses and think, <clears throat> you know, these are this is where the deacons started, right? This is the deacon ministry, right? The seven, because they were serving food. But what's the next thing that they're talking about? It's not about food service. You've got Stephen preaching. It says, Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. So the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I'm going to get to Stephen, just going to go back to him in a minute. But there's something that happens also in the text that maybe we miss. And as as I read this and I studied it, I recognized, wow, there's a lot going on here. There is growth that happens as a result. And it seems that Luke is making this clear when he writes this, that the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, particularly among the priests. Now, why the priest? Why does Luke go to the extra work to mention priests? Well, think of it in this way. If the priests, as part of the old uh, system of the priests were the ones who also helped handle the food that had been used as offerings, and those priests were the ones who also distributed the, the food that was presented to the Lord as an offering and was distributed rightfully among the Levitical, the priesthood, so that they would have something to eat. They actually were people who were practically involved in ministry of food distribution in the old system. And as I read some commentaries on this, I read one of the commentaries that actually mentioned that later on in the same century, probably before the AD 70, that the priesthood was so corrupt under the old system that some of the priests were not getting their food allotment and died of starvation. So this is a big deal. When the food doesn't get distributed equally. And I think what was happening is that those priests saw the fair, equitable distribution, how this matter of, uh, of food, a very practical thing, was being dealt with openly, transparently, honestly, fairly, equitably. And they were impressed. And they go, these people don't just talk about these things. They practice them. They practice what they're doing. And they were, that was a big witness. And it says they... A lot of them came to faith as a result of it. Now, I'm only guessing, but it seems like there's a connection between those two things. The way they practiced doing the food distribution, caring for each other, made a difference in a witness to those priests, and many of them came to the Lord. And so that is the first baby step. These are the first baby steps of the church growing and breaking out of being tethered. And it helped the early disciples, the early church, to distinguish which parts were really significant and and linked to the gospel versus things that were cultural. The language that they spoke, there was no reason that they needed to continue to enforce, say, encourage people to learn Hebrew or they could be Greek-speaking. And so they began to set a precedent that the leadership and the cultural uh, dominant culture of the, the early church didn't have to be just one kind. It could be multiple. And it may not even occur to them at the time how much of a pivot there had been. There had been a pivot that they were no longer looking backwards at the temple, looking backwards in time to how things had been done, but they needed to face outward to recognize the rest of the world was not going to become Hebrew in order to become a follower of Jesus. And that was a long time before they could really understand that. But it began because the way they began to listen. They listened to the complaint. They responded. They learned something from it. They discerned something from it. 
And so <clears throat> this was a big deal. This was such a huge deal that it became the pattern for other decisions. Okay, and I know we didn't read it, but you already have had it preached through the, the rest of Act 6. Next thing you know, Stephen is out there, and what's the next thing that's happening? This guy that has been, along with seven other Greek-speaking, they appointed seven Greek-speaking minority community within the, the church to be in charge of this distribution. So they picked those from the aggrieved community to do this work, therefore affirming them and their language and their background. And they weren't just affirmed to become uh, just uh, not just just deacons, but not only serve food, but next thing you know is Stephen. He's out preaching. He is out there preaching, and so he is also causing, well, he, it isn't, he's willingly causing trouble, but he is the first martyr of the church because he is effective in what he's doing because he's now reaching his own people. He is reaching his own people who speak probably Greek. He is associated with the, the, one of the, the synagogues, the synagogue of Friedman that I mentioned before, that seemed to stir up trouble against him and get him into hot water and trouble. And as a result of that, and his being the first martyr of the church. Next, we see the Greek, the Greek believers in Jesus being cast out from Jerusalem or, or thrust out, not the Hebrew ones. They seem to be, uh, uh, have missed out on this, this initial persecution. And the next thing you know, one of those other seven that were appointed in Acts 6 is Philip. And who's he preaching to now? So he's preaching now. These are Stephen and Philip, two men set aside to serve food, but they're now preaching, serving the word of life, the bread of life to others. He's up in Samaria, and he's having success. And Peter has to come up and, and verify what's going on there. And the Holy Spirit comes down and puts his thumbprint and of A-OK on that group of Samaritans. So this is actually now also a fulfillment of Acts 1-8, that the gospel will be will be preached in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So it's already been preached in Jerusalem by the apostles in the surrounding area, Judea. And now this is Philip beginning to reach into Samaria. This is like a rock dropped into the middle of a still pond, and those repercussions are moving outward in these these concurrent waves, shock waves of the gospel. It's now impacting the next community, the Samaritans. But it took the Greek-speaking Philip, one of the seven, to do that. And Peter winds up up there affirming it. Next thing you know is Philip is out uh, ministering to an Ethiopian on the south road out of Jerusalem. And the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, he comes alongside and ministers to him, fulfills that piece of information. Who is this Messiah? Who is this person? This passage of Isaiah speaking of. And next thing you know, the Ethiopian is going off praising God back to Ethiopia with a, a, a completed knowledge of who, what the Old Testament scriptures, who it was prophesying, that it, this is this is Jesus, and he's been baptized. Next thing you know, Philip is off in Caesarea along the coastline, slightly, again, different culturally, slightly different linguistically, not just Jewish. Here it is, Philip again, ministering in that area, and that's where he kind of fades from the, the, the narrative. But before you know it, there's a connection to Peter in Acts 10, when Peter winds up, ministering to Cornelius, the first pagan, full uh, Gentile, we'll say pagan by religion, background person who has no connection to Judaism except he's a God-fearer, and he comes to full faith in Christ. And yet there's still resistance from the church back in Jerusalem. 
Now, this is getting ahead of our story, and you haven't got to that yet, or some of it you have. Um, but it's gonna, there's a continuing affirmation of each decision when the apostles are called back to the church in Jerusalem, first in Acts 10 and then in Acts 15. Well, Paul does it as well. <clears throat> he has to go report back to the church in Jerusalem. Why have you allowed the gospel to go beyond our cultural understanding of circumcision and dietary law and all these cultural things that are associated with, with, with the faith being rooted and grounded in Judaism? And each of their decisions reflects that same early decision, that, that the gospel is the gospel, and it doesn't have to be rooted in one culture or another. It is the gospel to all cultures. And at each time, first in Acts 10 and then Acts 15, the early church affirms that this gospel does not have to stay Jewish. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to keep dietary law. That's good news. We wouldn't be sitting here today... I don't know if anybody's from Jewish background, but none of us would be here if we were Gentile background if this good news hadn't broken out from being tethered to that one culture of that time and the cultural and traditions of that time. So the good news becomes good news because it breaks out and it really gets, the baton gets passed, the church continues to grow because it breaks out. The, excuse me, those Greek-speaking Jews and Hellenists in Acts 6, some of them seem to be connected to some of the first, uh, the the breaking out of the gospel in going to Crete, and to Crete with Saul, who's also part of that stoning of Stephen in, in Acts 6. And so Paul, being one of those Hellenists himself, bicultural, he was... Uh, a Pharisee of Pharisees as well as a Greek-speaking Roman citizen, but of Jewish lineage. He is caught up into this mission and becomes the pioneer of seeing how the gospel needs to cross cultural boundaries because it has been released. It has been released already. And so before you know it, Paul is, it's all, it becomes Paul. Paul and others uh, go off to Antioch. In Antioch, they finally, uh, they stop just speaking to Greek-speaking Jews, and they finally break out and speak to just the Gentiles. And there's an amazing turning. So all this is connected back to what happened in Acts 6. This first recognition that the Holy Spirit was causing growth, and it was growth that was good for the church. That this growth was going to come at the price of being tethered to just that one culture. But it required a pivot that was painful. It was difficult for the early church to recognize that a cultural shift had happened. And that they had to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Growth, for us at this time, still means change. But it began with how they responded. And that's my template for even understanding events today in the culture around us, in the church culture, in the in the context we live in. It begins with the same pattern of listening, acknowledging, responding, paying attention to, discerning what the Holy Spirit is doing, and recognizing there's something at work here that is just more than, than a human complaint. There is something that God is doing, and he wants to bring about growth. Because... When it happened, when they finally break through, broke through, it exploded into the Greek-speaking world and the Romans and the rest of the world as well. And they would have missed that had they not paid attention to it at that time. So, <clears throat> to love is means to listen. To listen with understanding. And 
if we can love our neighbors who we can see, then we can begin to love others around the world. The the growth of the North American church, this is to, to understand the cultural shift we're in right now. Did you know that probably about 30 years ago was when the church, outs, the, the non-Western, non-North American church, about 30 years ago, the church outside of the West and North America became bigger than the West and North America. And today it's even grown larger. Praise God. The church is no longer just Western, North American, by its primary identity of numbers. It is larger in Africa, South America, Asia, mostly sub-Saharan Africa. But it is larger. They are in the majority. We, as Westerners and North Americans, are in the minority. Praise God. The church has grown and has multiplied so much that they are now the majority speaking majority culture that speaks other languages. They are more than 50% of the global church this today. There's no greater fact to show you that missions works than to point to that one fact. And a lot of that has happened in the last 150 to 200 years. In fact, even in the last 60 or 70 years, where the gospel has so far taken root into those cultures, it has become their gospel. It's demonstrated in their form and the way they do things. And it is, we recognize each other because the Holy Spirit is at work and we have commonalities, but we, it would never have gotten there if it had been tied to English, left in English, or in Latin, or in the Greek, or in the Hebrew, if we go backwards in church history, or if you continue to the East, it wouldn't have continued to grow in the, uh, in the world if it had been linked to the, the Syriac language, or the Persian language, or some of the earlier language that were predominant in Asia of the early church. When we recognize that there is change and there's a right way to respond to it by discerning what the Holy Spirit is doing, we can see the growth of the church. And that's what we're here to look at. So, as I reflect on different examples of that in our own church, we have struggled, even our small church in north, north of Boston. You know, we recognize, you know, we are an insulated, isolated culture, subculture within their greater culture. And how do we make connection with them? Well, a lot of people look on our, not just our church, but evangelical culture today and think there's a lot of things that we don't understand, we don't get, and they will have no association because we do things very differently. Not just that they won't walk in the door, but they know we have opinions that may not reflect what they reflect. And so there's a misunderstanding that we have to overcome. But how do we do that? Well, sometimes it it often happens between individuals who are willing to cross those barriers and we don't just call them missionaries we call them uh, people of uh, people who are often bicultural i'll give an example within our church our small church we're only 40 or 50 people we all look pretty much the same okay we have some people who are black but but not many so and some who are asian but not many and so outwardly you'd think we're all of really one culture until you begin to scratch and you find out oh actually these few are canadians he's australian uh, this one's ecuadorian now, this one's from Ghana. That's a little more obvious. This one's from Korea. But we've learned so much even in the last year by paying attention to just one person in our congregation who is very bicultural, and she's the one from Ecuador. And she has been a great gift to us to help us to see from her work in inner city in Boston and Chelsea as a teacher. Uh, she's a very godly woman, and she has taken on a great challenge. Um, outwardly, you would know, never know that she is from Ecuador. But... 
she has an insight because of that, of recognizing that there are things that we do that we don't recognize we do because we're, we have blind spots within our church culture that other people might not understand when they come in. And she's given us also insight into the African, the, the black culture of the day and help us understand as a church why some things are really such a big deal that we need to pay attention. So from her one voice within a community, she wasn't saying, she wasn't complaining, but she has been a gift to us of the Holy Spirit to say this one person has given us so much insight into how we can grow the church maybe by adjusting some things we do as our church culture. And and believe me, we have more to learn, not just from her, but from others in our midst as well, who have insight into other cultural ways that we have gotten comfortable. And I'll use that word very carefully. Comfortable. I have grown comfortable. I don't like being uncomfortable, made uncomfortable in, in the cultural setting, in my church setting, to say, you know what, we need some things to change. And I'm like, oh, we don't really need to change, do we? Can't they change towards, like... The way we do things, ah, that's the problem. That's the problem. Is that we expect others to change the way, to things the way we like them, and that we're comfortable with them. Well, that's the exact same problem the early Jerusalem church was having. They were quite comfortable in the way things were. And they didn't really want them to change if they didn't have to. But they had to embrace, if they were going to grow... Their sense of comfort and the way they were, the familiar ways were going to have to change. Their tradition, just how they, how they ate, ate together was going to have to change. And you see in Acts 15, and you'll get to that soon, that the, the regulations given to the early church for how the Gentile and the, the Jewish background believers were supposed to fellowship, a lot of it had to do with food. Food is very important in culture. And how you eat together is a big deal. Because it reflects a lot of values. It reflects, langu- languages reflect, reflects culture. These are all things we've had to learn. And as we grow in mission, and we have done that ourselves, my wife and I worked in Central Asia for most of 20 years, and we have been involved with the, the project for the Presbytery working in the Caucasus region. The biggest challenge to people not understanding the gospel and not knowing it's for them are all cultural. They don't even understand what we do even in a church service, let alone why this message is relevant for us. Uh, Say a Muslim culture, their background is so different. Uh, They understand religion differently. They understand uh, why we come together. They they understand family relationships very different. Not just, even they have, uh, they're anchored to a different religious language, the Arabic language and culture from a different time. But, so, culture is still one of the biggest barriers for the growth of the gospel, and yet one of the biggest blessings, because once it becomes enculturated, incarnated into another language, another cultural form, it's free to spread. It's free to spread among that people, and those, and that's why it's important that we continue to learn, and we work to learn, to listen to what the Holy Spirit is doing, and lead it, and lead, and follow His leading into breaking out into new areas. It is a painful time we are in as a culture, and as a church culture, add to it COVID, and you've got a very difficult time. But if we can discern what the Holy Spirit is saying in the midst of this, I think there is growth ahead if we pay attention to it. Let me close with prayer. Lord, you are good. The increase of your government will have no end, Lord. 
We take that as a promise, Lord, from Isaiah. Father, we thank you that you are good in giving us challenges and not letting us become comfortable in our own cultural setting. Thank you. You give us the Holy Spirit, which is able to give us wisdom in every age, in every time, in every situation as to what to do and how to get through this. And more than that, to discern the new thing you are doing in the midst of it. Lord, this is your church, even this church, Huntington Valley, our church, North Point, the church in North America, around the world. This is your church. Lord, we want to keep in step with the Holy Spirit and what he is doing to grow the church and helping us as we need comfort in the midst of our change, but we need to keep in step with it as well. Lord, help us discern what you're doing so that the church may continue to grow. This seed of wheat must fall to the ground and die before it is able to reproduce. So, Lord, help us to die to the small things that keep us bound in one way of thinking, that keep it from communicating to others in other cultures and other people around us. Lord, we want to see the church grow, that the gospel would be central in all that we do because it is good news for everyone. Lord, we give this to you and ask for your wisdom. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.